This is On Diversity, a podcast series by the Institute of Policy Studies, Singapore. This is the third season and I'm your host, Liang Kai Sing, Associate Director of IPS and also a former journalist. Today's episode is on palliative care for the young and old and we have Dr. Chong Po Heng, founder of Star Pulse, a palliative care service under HCA Hospice Care. We also have Tae Jia Ying, founder of Happy Ever After, an end-of-life support care and planning partner. Welcome to the podcast today. Thank you for Hi. having me. Well, first thing first, I'll just have a short introduction about Health Minister Ong Kang because he just announced that he will be trying to boost palliative care at home and give more support to caregivers. So to Dr. Chong and Jia Ying, what are your thoughts on the current state of palliative care in Singapore and what more can be done? Perhaps I will jump in first. Yep. So um, I, I was very encouraged by Minister's um, vision of uh, how he sees um, the palliative care scene evolve, uh, you know, over the next five uh, years ahead of us. So um, I think specifically he was uh, noticing that while so many Singaporeans really, you know, wish to spend final days and weeks and months uh, in the home setting, sadly, the reality is that uh, up to um, 60% of our uh, folks in Singapore actually eventually end up dying in hospital. So um, I think he hopes to bring this number down by 10%. It is a very ambitious uh, vision. But uh, he has outlined quite a number of strategies um, and has uh, engaged the community here to think about how they can be, uh, you know, put in action. So in a nutshell, palliative care really is about um, helping someone to deal with a serious medical illness. Because if you imagine uh, that somebody is now diagnosed with an illness and this somebody need not be someone very old. I was just having a conversation with someone earlier about how palliative care uh, might be required by uh, anybody of any age. So uh, to be diagnosed with a serious illness, you could be a child, a teenager, a young adult, uh, or a middle-aged person. It's not something that is the privilege, you know, for want of a better word, of an older person. So therefore, palliative care uh, hopes to reach out to these people because once you're diagnosed with a serious illness like that, your whole life changes, your perspective about the future, uh, your hopes and wishes, and your current, I suppose, I wouldn't call them struggles, your own lifestyle, your living, your profession, uh, your family, um, uh, really turns upside down. And that's where suffering happens. And that's where palliative care hopes to minimize in terms of suffering and um, hopes to actually bring back uh, that uh, fervor to live, that passion to sort of uh, enjoy every moment uh, while it lasts. Okay. How about Jiaying? Can you, how about just tell us what you do and also how do you see palliative care uh, for your profession? Okay, so um, I'm practicing. I'm establishing my practice to become uh, to be an end of life doula, uh, basically someone who journeys with somebody else through their end of life journey. And I think I'm also trying to define it very widely because actually, every moment that we're living, we're dying. So I guess in a sense, anyone who is prepared to talk about dying at whatever health condition 
I'm, I'm, I'll be happy to journey with the person. So um, in this uh, last couple of years, I think this is when I actually started to uh, go more deeply into this work. So I have actually been uh, volunteering mostly at various hospices uh, just to understand, I guess, what it is really like to be at the end of life. Um, yeah, because I think that is the sure part. No, actually, it is the, the only certainty in life is that we will all die one day. Um, so I think for me, the way that I see it based on my, I would say, pretty limited experience is that um, palliative care is something that I think should be extended to anyone um, at the start of their diagnosis of a a terminal illness or a life-limiting illness. Uh, from what I see, at least based on what I read from Singapore Hospice Council's website and the way that Singapore defines it at least, is that palliative care is more or less synonymous with hospice care, which hospice care, again, correct me if I'm wrong, <laughs> um, really kicks in at the really final stages of life, a year before, three months before, weeks before, but palliative care, I believe, should be introduced even earlier because I think dying is a very difficult to process idea, experience. Um, and it really takes time. Uh, and anyone who is actually diagnosed with any form of life-limiting illness would inevitably think of death and dying. But of course, uh, being very life positive. Um, we talk about treatments, we talk about next steps, we talk about fighting um, the disease, we talk about conquering and winning. But the possibility of death is always just lingering. It is very important to engage the person with this issue already so that we can start thinking, well, not that I'm going to die immediately when I get a... a an indication that I may have cancer in 10 years, right? But at least to get that conversation started. Yeah, so I I think that it is very important to introduce or expose uh, more people to the option of palliative care, to talk about palliative care. And I would hope that it can be brought even further upstream than whatever that we're offering today. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So Dr. Chong, because Jia Ying mentioned about palliative care uh, equates to hospice care, right? Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. I mean, you work in a hospice. Yes. So what are your thoughts about this? Well, uh, yes, uh, I, I suppose different people uh, have uh, different labels uh, for almost the same thing. However, I think, like, uh, I agree with Jia Ying that... Um, Palliative care really is very much more upstream. Sometimes we like to think of palliative care being offered at uh, diagnosis. And very much the work that professionals like ourselves do is around helping somebody to come to terms with a diagnosis that is devastating with um, real consequences. And at the same time, helping them to navigate the health system to make some of those very difficult decisions, to chemo or not chemo, to do surgery or not. Uh, and, and if at diagnosis you're offered, uh, you know, 
not very much because the disease is quite extensive or somebody is too old to receive any treatment. I hope nobody is too poor to receive any treatment in Singapore. Um, then is to help them confront and embrace a different life of, uh, you know, perhaps maybe more defined expiry dates uh, where they can spend every day um, enjoying themselves, finding meaning, returning back to their first love and discovering what else is there that they haven't done. And that's where the bucket list comes up. So I think uh, it, it runs the whole spectrum of different interventions from... Uh, difficult decision making to helping somebody to live as well as possible whatever comes and moving on then to hospice care about how if the disease becomes uh, more severe with a progression how you can still continue to enjoy decent quality of life and not suffer uh, the ills of a sickness, whether it's in management of pain, uh, helping them to continue to stay functional and independent so that, you know, I mean, if you imagine yourself one day having to have somebody change your diapers, how good can that be? And and how does that translate to, you know, that emotional or psychological uh, sort of preparation and, and, and acceptance of that reality. So it's it's all of the above. And then moving closer and closer to death, um, how do you want that to look like? Where should it happen? Who are the people you want around you during that time or moments? Yeah, I, I shall stop here. So I'm not even talking about planning your funeral and everything else, but uh, you know that there are so much you need to do and therefore uh, get on with it. You know, know that it's there. Don't run away. Uh, like uh, how, uh, you know, Jia uh, Ying mentioned about how people get very busy uh, fighting an illness, conquering, you know, I don't know. Uh, so I, I think a lot of people spend needless time and energy and resources trying to uh, battle uh, something that is not going to go away. Yeah, I'm not saying that you give up before you know you even begin trying, but do what we often call parallel planning. You you know hope for the best, but prepare for the worst. Okay, um, Doctor Chong, I think just now when you mentioned about wanting to increase the number of people who can die at home. What do you mean by that? I think uh, Minister Ong also mentioned about it. And doing that, are there any limitations to help people to die at home instead of the hospital or hospice? Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a, it's a million-dollar question that the ministry as well as all the healthcare professionals in Singapore are uh, you know, pondering at the moment. Um, like everything in this world, um, it is a very uh, sort of complex, uh, multi-layered uh, consideration. So it's not easily reduced to like one or two policies or one or two interventions or, um, you know, even a service to be set up to, to do this uh, work of bringing people from hospital back home. So firstly, um, I think this... Uh, Vision actually stemmed from uh, previous surveys that had been done uh, both long time ago and uh, in the recent past of how consistently more than 
three quarters of the population when they are cold, whether young or old, they will want to, you know, die at home when the time comes. However, the reality is more than half of them will end up dying in the hospital. So, so that's the statistics. And uh, Minister Ong actually cited his own uh, personal experience uh, when his parent actually passed. How, when he was able to nurse uh, the parent at home, um, it was a very warm and uh, familiar space that uh, was created and uh, it allowed um, him to be the caregiver. Uh, and I like to think that... Um, you know, that is the way that most of us would want to spend our last moments. And he is hoping to then expand this benefit uh, to everybody, uh, at least three quarters of us who had declared that we wanted to spend last days at home, to be able to enjoy uh, those moments uh, as, he, as he sort of thought back in, in, in memory, uh, all the savour those moments that he spent uh, with his loved one. So I think um, that that's a really good vision. But however, in the real world, there are some patients who had wished to die in uh, the home. However, at the last minute, they would change their mind. Either because the condition condition becomes uh, severe or uh, problematic, uh, or they actually don't want to burden their caregivers when they see how, you know, they juggle work and uh, caregiving, uh, how they needed to spend money to either get help, uh, either with domestic helpers or, you know, professional carers, and also how, you know, they were all losing sleep and and, uh, quite emotionally drained uh, in the act of caregiving. So many times some of our patients actually surrender themselves back to the hospital because they, they really want to release uh, you know, their family caregivers from this uh, burden of caregiving. And yet there are other situations where we have got loners who absolutely don't have family. These people, even if they want to stay at home, I, I, as a professional, I could never sort of feel like that's the appropriate thing to do. And um, sometimes the home can be quite a miserable setting, which uh, some of us really feel uh, kind of morally uh, wrong to host these people at home because they they lack the uh, the environment, the safety, and and many other aspects that are. Uh, is decent enough for someone to spend final hours and, and eventually die there. So there, there are many factors to consider, but again, uh, like every difficult thing we do, we make the first step, we chip at it a uh, little at a time. Uh, as long as we can save someone, just one, uh, that's good enough. How Jiaying comes in at this point? <laughs> <laughs> How do you help these patients who want to die at home? I would imagine my role to be someone of an advocate, yeah, to advocate for this person who may not be able to navigate the system, may not understand their options. I I think that there will be some people who don't understand even what it means to die at home. Like what are the things that are required? And there's actually a lot of logistics as well as administration and, you know, just coordinating people to be around another person, to care for the other person until the person passes away. It's actually a lot of administration, logistics, understanding forms and things like that, which in, in hospice settings, I mean, we have social workers as well. But I think, um, at least from what I'm seeing, is that 
the social workers are also very stretched. Mm -hmm. So the way that I see myself coming in is really extra capacity mm -hmm. to spend more time with uh, the patients who are dying uh, and to better advocate for them and to advocate for their needs, their wants at the end of their lives. Really, yeah. yes. I think um, giving people options is the first step. So we mustn't go away and tell people that uh, this is the only way. So when things get tough, uh, you know, you just call 995 and you send your loved one to hospital and, and that's the most legit place to be uh, for someone who is very ill. We have seen so many different sort of experiences of uh, various families at different strata in society, whether rich or poor, uh, well-resourced or otherwise. Uh, they have... Uh, been able to actually look after the uh, the loved ones so well, in spite of uh, you know lack of resources and support. Um, but uh, what is important is that actually we have a big society with community with people with such big hearts, right? Uh, and of course, professional services like ourselves, hospice services uh, at uh, you know hospital levels or inpatient settings uh, that can provide for these patients and families in the community. So uh, I dare say that if you are clear about your choice, if you are determined uh, to you know uh, do what you can to the best of your capacity or you know uh, capability you will not be short of uh, healthcare professionals who will be there to assist you. So the job is still yours. We're not taking that away. But what we are there to do is almost like a tour guide that helps you navigate some of these vagaries of, uh, you know, end-of-life care. I, I suppose it's, it's really, we, we are victims of our success, uh, really, uh, because over time, uh, you know, can you imagine like decades ago, um, dying at home is like quite the normal thing. However, with advance in science and medicine, what we're seeing is a lot of outsourcing of these, uh, you know, what we call uh, end-of-life care uh, to the professionals in the institutional setting um, until it becomes such a strange and odd affair that people cannot imagine this uh, happening. I think uh, this is a gradual, what I will call, um, you know, professionally, medicalization of death and dying uh, that needs to change uh, with time. And uh, I, I suppose like everything else that goes back retro, this is one of those things I, I don't mind embracing, um, you know, something old-fashioned, uh, which is to bring back that warmth, that family-oriented uh, atmosphere and that uh, returning back home kind of feeling uh, when uh, one begins to wrap up uh, your beautiful life uh, in the past. I have a question because just now when you mentioned that when patients are at their last hour, last minute, as family, if you see the person is suffering or like in great pain and all that, and you panic and you call the ambulance. I can't imagine not calling the ambulance though for myself <laughs> because you, you don't want to see the person suffer, right? Mm -hmm, so mm -hmm. how would you educate people and what kind of conversations are we trying to have to mm -hmm. educate everyone to, mm. to embrace this then? If I might take that question and, and I would love to hear Jia Ying's um, perspective on this one. Um, two points I want to highlight. Um, suffering. What, what exactly is suffering? 
So we are going very philosophical now. Exactly. So, so um, to me, um, pain and some of the distressing symptoms associated with, um, you know, dying, they are very easy to manage. Uh, we have the knowledge and skills and the experience to ensure that anybody under my care, for example, or for that matter, the, my colleagues' care, because we work in teams. It's, it's not just one doctor's job uh, in palliative medicine. It is about a team-based uh, sort of intervention, uh, leveraging on the expertise of the doctors, the nurse, the social workers, the counsellors, the art therapists, the physios, to actually do a grand piece of job. So so that part, I'm quite sure, uh, we will be able to so manage. But the suffering that is associated with uh, end-of-life care is around acceptance of uh, a reality and um, letting go. I suppose these are some of my uh, reflections that I have um, accumulated in my last two decades of work in this area and also including some of the work I did uh, as part of my uh, PhD studying what a good death means to uh, a dying child. Uh, letting go is something that is easier said than done and when one doesn't let go, uh, that's where suffering happens uh, because there is this tussle or tension between a holding on to something which is far slipping away and how good can that feeling be? So if you ask me, I think a lot of those very uh, anxious uh, you know, moments when you press 995, it's around difficulty letting go. And, and I think that's the part that we, you know, professionals like ourselves in hospice and palliative care are still uh, trying very hard to manage using different, uh, you know, approaches. Uh, but uh, I, I, I like to think that if we're given enough time, unfortunately, most of the time the patients are referred to us quite late. We are not able to look back, uh, you know, with a, a caregiver, for example, about guilt, regrets, um, you know, things that haven't quite been said and all that, that actually sometimes uh, when it comes to a rush or when you have so little time left, it re really uh, ups the, you know, the tension and that's when uh, this uh, Press 995 thing happens. Okay. <laughs> Jai, what do you think? I think, I mean, Pressing 995 is just one of the things that you may be, um, like you may really want to do at the end of, uh, at at uh, at someone's suffering when you witness someone's suffering. So I was just thinking also um, just now, uh, Doctor Chong, you mentioned guilt. I think guilt is a very powerful emotion that is probably what is driving these actions as well. So if I don't call nine nine five, will I be guilty? Have I made the wrong choice? Right. So I think um, I was thinking about another example actually. So I think, uh, coming back to the calling 995 uh, example first, uh, assuming that my family member is already in hospice care and we already know that he or she is dying, then my understanding is that in the hospice systems, there are nurses, there are doctors that are already attached to um, the, the patient and instructions would have been conveyed. What do I do when this happens, right? So hopefully the education is, is complete, right? That I don't panic when I have this information. Of course, if let's say suddenly my, my, my uh, mum falls and passes 
and 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 goes unconscious. Obviously, I'll call nine nine five because she is not dying, right? So I think so. These are these are correct responses. Um, I think in my uh, volunteering uh, experience, I think one of the things that actually people can't really let go is to actually be feeding um, their family member. So at the end of their, of someone's life, uh, given that you're dying already, that your body is shutting down, you no longer need any nutrition, right? You are just fading away. But as the family member, you would feel like, eh, should I be feeding this person, uh, my, my mom or my dad? If I don't feed, then will he die? I mean, yes, he will die, right? <laughs> right? You know, I think there is that, 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 that fear. If I don't feed, then I would have caused the death. But no, actually, the process is already happening. Actually, the person doesn't want to drink or eat anymore, have no desire to eat or drink anymore, no need to eat or drink anymore. But we would still want to feed because that is our response to life. And when we're, when we're facing a dying person, we need to remember that this person is no longer going to have more life. This person is going away. So, so I think guilt, yeah. I, if I don't feed the person, the person <laughs> dying, then it's my fault, you know. Yeah. It, it's so true. I, I think uh, I, I resonate with that. Uh, and I see that uh, a lot of time. So I suppose uh, there is so much meaning to, uh, you know, feeding, particularly in the Asian society uh, where, you know, when you prepare food, whether it's a mum prepares food, milk for a baby or, uh, you know, a mother uh, preparing food for a child uh, and then now a daughter like yourself preparing food for uh, your mum or dad uh, who is unwell, uh, that that speaks a lot uh, and, and it is uh, really in our culture, in our psyche, uh, as the right thing to do. And when the situation happens uh, such that uh, you're not able to or you're prevented to do that, then we uh, are kind of stuck. And that's how I think uh, that meaning-making needs to happen. Um, you might understand it uh, cognitively in the head, but uh, at the heart level, it is something you, you're you struggling to grapple with. And that's where I suppose hospice and palliative care comes in. So so the science in hospice and palliative care is not really about uh, you know, the biomedical aspects only. Uh, that's something we do very well. But uh, we also very well, uh, you know, support our caregivers as well as our patients sometimes if they still are, uh, you know, mentally sound, thinking about like why me? Why, why did God punish me this way? It's, you know, some of those existential questions we help the patients to manage. But uh, the caregivers in particular, like in this example, when you cannot feed anymore, then what do you do? I must send, uh, you know, my mom to the hospital because uh, th then they can put on drips. They, they can put on tubes. And you know, I get asked questions uh, all the time. Can we put in a tube? Because my mom cannot swallow now. Uh, I, I will just have to say, you know, this is a natural anticipated process of dying and like Jia Ying so beautifully you know uh, said it uh, when someone is in this state actually they don't need that nutrition anymore sometimes we throw in I, I won't call them scare tactics but rather when you feed at this time when somebody doesn't need it you can do more harm than good Right. So, so hopefully some of these uh, explanations would be able to assuage the, whether it's the guilt, misgivings uh, that some of our caregivers have and hopefully hold them back from just doing the very uh, sort of panic 
uh, sort of button response thing. And and I think uh, every little thing helps. The only thing is, of course, uh, it is unique to each and every family. And that's the reason why uh, in the work that we do, we need to go really in-depth to understand what a family is like on a good day and what a family is struggling with at the moment and more importantly, what the family is hoping, you know, to work towards in the future. So uh, this might be about how do you want to remember your mom's dying or uh, death? Um, How do you want to sort of recall this experience of serving uh, as a caregiver to your loved one? Uh, How would you like your children, for example, to remember uh, how their grandmother, uh, you know, Kung Kung or Nanai, uh, you know, had sort of lived uh, with them so well, so warmly cared for until, you know, they just died naturally, you know, without all the tubes, uh, whether it's for feeding, for fluids, uh, without all the, you know, uh, paraphernalia of modern medicine, uh, for that matter. So I think um, to reduce this medical uh, medicalization of dying, um, you know, we, we should bring death and dying back home if it is appropriate, if it is the wish of, uh, you know, the, the dying. Uh, but you know, we should not be too dogmatic about, you know, numbers. Uh, it is really understanding what works for each person, each family, and of course, each community. About dying at home, because I have a friend whose father was uh, in advanced stage of de- dementia. So he was like really going in and out of hospitals. And then like when he's at home, my friend had to engage a helper, a domestic helper to take care of him. But as caregivers, she was under a lot of stress and all that. And I feel that in Singapore, if I'm not wrong, a lot of all these like elderly they are taken care of by domestic helpers, actually. So in order to die at home also, you, you do need some nursing professionals or is there anything else, is there anything more can be done to, to, to help all these caregivers? Every year, 20,000 Singaporeans die on the average. So um, how, how do you hire so many domestic helpers? We are even short of nurses looking after, you know, patients in the hospital or different healthcare settings. So again, uh, that's not quite the best solution for a major problem of this size. So again, I I like to promote uh, the need to then go back to the past to see how dying was like before. How do we manage uh, when dying happens? Are we setting ourselves too high in expectations? Or are we uh, actually uh, mollycoddled into thinking like, you know, I'll just pay this money and outsource this to somebody. Uh, But seriously ask yourself, uh, if you are the one dying, actually what do you need the most? Jain? I think um, caregiving is, is a very, very tough thing to do. I mean, caregiving is a 24-7 job. Uh, I have not... I have not been a caregiver to someone who is dying or seriously ill, but I mean, I take care of my kids and my nieces and my nephews. <laughs> I mean, it's a different spectrum of caregiving, but it's the same amount of work. And actually, in, in terms of attention. And I think in Singapore, 
or maybe any other developed city, um, the stress of living is also very high. So if I need to care give, I have to give up working, right? So what we typically see is that, oh, we will work and we'll hire a domestic worker because financially that makes more sense, right? I will still have some income to support other living items and I can have a domestic worker care for somebody that I love. So I think... I. I, I don't I don't really have a solution to this. Um, yeah, it's it's a much wider uh, systemic or uh, cultural or countrywide issue than just something that we can apply one single solution. Um, I have read uh, about uh, facilities overseas. I I don't know how good they are uh, where. Uh, in a sense, it's, I think it's assisted living, if I'm not wrong, yeah, where people continue to live at home, but there are professionals who are around to help, I guess, uh, manage the community and the community then looks out for each other. So I, I wonder, actually, I'm also thinking for myself when I die or when I am dying, what, what would I want? And... I think one of the things, yeah, I don't really want to burden my, my daughter. And if she needs to go and live, then she should go and, go and live her life. And I wouldn't mind hanging out with other old people or <laughs> other people who are like me, you know, in a community and, and, and living, right? Still living instead of um, going to a nursing home or as in what I imagine to be a stereotypical nursing home where there are very regimented schedules and, you know, things like that. Mm. Hopefully, I'm still able and, you know, able to walk around and be pretty independent. But I do need some assistance, you know. So, mm. so maybe we can offer different uh, facilities, so-called, right, at different levels mm. Uh, mm. Uh, so that there are more options for Singaporeans to, to go, go to. At, at this time. Exactly. Yeah. I, I suppose uh, what you have described is a, a kind of a model where uh, if the patient is not as ill, um, yes, certainly has a life-limiting illness, whether it's dementia or uh, some other sort of uh, advanced cancer, uh, and is still uh, semi-independent and what they need is some assurance that I can get help when I need, um, you know, or when there's a little accident, uh, I can just press a button and get someone uh, to come to my attention. So, uh, I do have a wish myself, you know, when uh, the time comes, uh, I don't know, I hope, uh, you know, in, in the not-too-distant future, anybody who is dying and has a family, you know, I, it, it, it just uh, brings us back to, you know, how our ladies get maternity leave when uh, they give birth to a new baby. I wonder whether caregivers can get paid leave when uh, a loved one, you could define, you know, this loved one could be a parent or even a child uh, who is dying. As I've said, right, uh, a dying person can be a young person or an old person. So if I have a loved one who is dying, can I get paid compassionately, not after the person has died? Because that, I suppose, although is important, I, I, I subscribe to the idea that it is more meaningful uh, to spend more time with the dying if we respect that that is a priority. To have the person, you know, not be... Uh, 
sort of tied down to whether it's work or explaining to the their RO or supervisor how they need to take leave. I have got many sort of experiences working with some family caregivers. They tell me that they have exhausted their annual leave uh, and their bosses are not terribly friendly. Uh, and, and here I'm watching somebody dying, uh, either at home, on a hospital bed, in, in the hospital, without any visitors. Uh, and, and when I ask, uh, you know, I, I heard that, uh, you know, the caregiver was uh, called back to the office. Or when I visit them at home, uh, the care is actually outsourced to either a domestic helper or a professional nurse that they use money to buy. So going back to that question about, actually, if you're the one lying on the bed, what exactly do you need? Does it matter whether it is in the home or in the hospital? I think when somebody, and I'm getting quite philosophical here, uh, when one is closing the last chapter in your life, actually, what do you treasure the most in those moments? Is it your car? (laughs) Your mobile phone? Or the people that you've lived with, uh, you know, all of your life, uh, Do you want to be surrounded by them? Not necessarily cared for by them, but to to have them close to you. And it might even be a dog for all you want, uh, you know. um, And and that's the reason why sometimes we bring dogs into hospital, (laughs) into our inpatient hospices, because those things mean so much to somebody who is saying their last goodbye and not coming back. That's how significant it is, and that's how... That's why very drastic measures need to be taken because this is only one chance that you're given to, you know, close uh, this last chapter of your life before you turn uh, the book uh, round. So, so I suppose uh, I, I'm just. This is a call to the policymakers out there who are listening to this podcast. Uh, anybody who is an advocate or champion in uh, the right places to think about incentivizing some of these uh, sort of policy making to allow this to happen because I think as I've said the numbers who are dying um, you know is so many and so high that uh, outsourcing it to whether it's healthcare providers or uh, lay workers like domestic helpers and all that is not the solution but more importantly what is so important to anybody young or old who is dying do we give them that respect or priority that we give to a newborn baby. So you, you, you see the Straits Times highlights, uh, you know, any new baby born on the cups of the brand new year. <laughs> Nobody celebrates somebody who has died in a warm surround, a family, in the home, as the year turns from 2022 to 2023. You know, I mean, so, so I, I suppose I'm just being very uh, lyrical here, but uh, again, uh, people like myself who've seen so many people come and go, live and die, uh, sometimes just just dream of uh, some of these possibilities. But is it a taboo right now? Do we talk about death too late in their life stages? Do you see younger people coming in to talk about how they want to die? Um, I started running uh, this thing called a death cafe uh, starting this year uh, in January. So I have actually conducted seven sessions and we've reached out to about around 50 people. Around seven to 10 people show up every month. Um, And I don't know whether it's because of my publicity channels uh, where I, who I reach out to in the first place or is it really that, you know, this is the demographic who wants to talk about 
end of life. But I do have a good number. In fact, I would say majority are young people and young people who are questioning life in the very existential way as well. Some of them have uh, caregiving experiences. Somebody, some people have um, everyday living type of life limiting, certain uh, illnesses. Disabilities. Disabilities, mm-hmm. yes. Which then limit their potential for life who are also then thinking about death. So uh, I think in the mainstream media or in our education system, we, we don't talk about dying uh, enough. And I think it should start earlier. In fact, I was joking. I can't remember with somebody. So at 40, which I'm hitting close soon, we'll get our Elder Shield <laughs> insurance. Invitation. Yeah, invitation, right? Cash you actually. <laughs> right? Yeah. Even earlier, uh, 35 or 30. Oh, really? Yes. Then I, did, I, then I missed my invitation. <laughs> <laughs> I thought it's 40. Okay, but yeah. anyway. Um, which is... Okay, so when my... I remember my cousins getting their Elder Shield letters and then they'll be like, oh my gosh, I'm an elder already. So then... I'm like, hey, why can't we kick in this conversation about end of life as well, right? I mean, since we're already talking about people being old at 40, then people will die too, right? <laughs> yeah, so um, I, I think, I think uh, coming back to your question, it is still a very taboo subject, topic. Uh, I have been very lucky, I think, that people who I meet in the space that I hold are all very open to talking about end of life. Um, I know that in uh, hospice settings, uh, based on accounts from my social workers, there are a lot of people who are very death-denying. There will be family members who don't even want to tell the their, their dying family member that they are dying. They want to withhold this information. Um, some people would not even want to talk about cancer, for example, don't mention this word. Don't, you know, pretend you're not from the hospice, you know. It's that, that kind of death denial. So, and and even, I think, I'm also thinking about my own, uh, I guess, what I, what I am, what I have grown up with as well. That when I tell people that I am, I am trying to be, I am an end-of-life doula, you know, I can't even talk about it directly. Right? Because there is this subconscious part of me that is like, you know, don't talk about death because people may not like it. Or it's not auspicious. It's a conversation killer, right? So I think it is very ingrained in all of us. And actually we have explored this multiple times through the different death cafe sessions that I have organized. And one of one one reason, or at least that I have settled for now, is that as human beings or as living beings, we are programmed to live. So our body will shut down anything that prevents us from doing that. And maybe that is just an automatic uh, mechanism on top of the cultural uh, and how we are being brought up. Yeah, so I think that's that. Uh, yeah. Dr. Chong, what about you? I mean, we were just discussing that there are some people around the 50s and 60s who mm-hmm. are very resistant to talking about death. Mm-hmm. I, I suppose uh, these groups of people, and I, I, I mean myself too, <laughs> um, until I went to the dark side, um, are like they have come out from their youthhood, you know, and, and they are getting or feeling closer 
to a different stage of their life. You know, this is the time when their knees started giving way um, and they, they get stomach problems or some of their friends actually died of heart attacks or whatnot. And it, it slowly dawns on them that, uh, you know, your clock continues to tick and your expiry date is coming closer. So as a result, sometimes, uh, you know, like uh, Jia Ying mentioned, people, the, the knee-jerk response is to move away, to deny that it's happening. Either that or they go and do a new hairstyle or go to the gym to, to kind of like do a death-defying act almost. Yeah, I have gone through those. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, and then uh, what I've observed uh, in, in my experience, especially in the last 10 years, um, the younger people, uh, those that Jia Ying engaged in her deaf cafe sessions and the much older ones, these are the ones who are more open. Um, the younger ones may be thinking that, oh, it, it, it will not happen until like decades later. So don't worry about them until then. The very old ones, they are kind of prepared to either make, meet their maker or they kind of have resigned themselves to c closing their life. And uh, my father, for instance, is a little bit fearful of uh, what's going to happen, what's going to come, where it's going to go. My mum, on the other hand, is like happily making all her funeral plans. Yeah, so so, it, it, it's, it's a bit heterogeneous, but uh, generally they're more prepared. Yeah, so, so therefore I think we have work to do uh, in the middle age uh, groups and uh, in the younger age groups for them because these are the ones who are going to become middle aged to continue to inculcate in them this fervor for life and this uh, perhaps uh, ability to embrace death if it does come because if I, I I really believe that if you live your life very very well actually uh, uh, there is nothing left to do you might really want to go on to you know discover what comes after death. Uh, because you're so bored of whatever you're doing right now, you know, you just want to move on. Perhaps maybe that's the way to go. And for the ones who are already, you know, knocking on the door, is to ensure them that, you know, and this is something I hear all the time, I'm not afraid of dying, but I'm afraid of the pain that comes with the dying process. So that's the part where I think hospital palliative care can come into that space to ensure that, look, um, you don't have to suffer physically uh, in pain or any other forms of distress because you have allowed us to come in to do what we can. And I am fairly confident majority of the cases we would be able to get those under control. Uh, as I've said earlier in this discussion, what is hard is um, accepting the fate and then letting go. And that's that suffering that I think they have to do their own homework uh, either within themselves or with uh, individuals in the family, because again, um, this thing, this this thing, I say all the time to my uh, the people I minister to or support. Uh, when there is no love, there will be no pain. So it's so easy for somebody who is, uh, you know, loner all this life has, has been, you know, not loved by anybody. It's just merely taking one step across the bridge. But for people who have so much encumbrance, connections, bonds, uh, these are the ones who find it so hard to let go. And, and I think there is lots, uh, you know, that we can do in this space uh, using different sort of approaches, whether uh, social media uh, or uh, discussions like these. Uh, and of course, uh, 
knowledge, like science and, and, and evidence. Dr. Chang, you're also the founder of Star Pulse, is to take care of like young terminally ill patients. In contrast to elderly patients who may be more prepared for death, as you said just now, how do you take care of these younger patients and also their parents and loved ones? Uh, thanks for uh, asking this question. I, yeah, I can't wait to tell you all about the work that I do with uh, children who unfortunately get di- diagnosed with uh, devastating uh, you know, diagnoses and uh, have their life, which is normally expected to be long and at least uh, you know, beyond adulthood, to be cut short. Some of our babies die even before they're born, acknowledging that there are some of these losses. Uh, whether it is uh, miscarriages or stillborns. Some of our babies come out uh, and die within the first week or first month or first year of life. And so these are our neonatal losses. Uh, another population of uh, children that I look after. And some of our children come out normal and then develop different conditions, whether cancer or uh, other conditions, non-cancerous, and they needed to close their life uh, prematurely. So if you imagine that this wonderful being that is born to a beautiful family uh, of parents or maybe even siblings and grandparents, what kind of effects uh, it would have or impact uh, you know, it creates in, in this family unit. And that's the work we do in paediatric palliative care, uh, offering all of the above that we discuss in this program and more to help the child as well as uh, his or her significant others to come to terms with the reality and to, you know, prepare to let go. But the same sort of principles or concepts apply, except that I suppose the emotional or psychological burden is, uh, you know, multiplied a few more times, uh, given that this is counter to nature. Uh, At the same time, uh, I like to think that doing this work, uh, although emotionally very difficult, I actually learned so much from these children and I have really sort of transferred some of these lessons that I learned from kids to the care I do with uh, the older adults or even the uh, elderly uh, that I care for uh, in this big sort of program that I run called HCA Hospice. Um, and I think it has taught me many lessons about uh, living and life itself Uh, And many of these parents, uh, so courageous and so, you know, uh, wonderful, have also helped me to disseminate the message, uh, which is really about life is precious. Treasure every moment. Uh, You never know when you will lose it. Yeah. Okay. So how different are they uh, when it comes to managing their their end of life? I I will say that um, it is almost similar in terms of the technicality. So we still, you know, uh, dish out morphine and whatnot that I'm very famous for. Um, And uh, we do a lot more of the uh, support in terms of the psychosocial, emotional and sometimes spiritual uh, dimensions. Because, uh, again, uh, some of us uh, may uh, be aligned to some religious uh, denominations and uh, have got our own beliefs and values. Uh, And and when we are challenged like this uh, in a crisis um, of this proportion, uh, we start to question you know, whether there is a God, if at all, 
you know, uh, some of these are very hard for these parents to so, so contemplate. So, so that part of work is uh, very important. Uh, the other bit is also about uh, acknowledging that uh, it has an impact on everybody else that surrounds this one family. So I'm talking about, for example, the teenagers that I look after, the, the friends on Instagram uh, or other social media, the classmates in school, the teachers and everybody else, and the grandparents... I'm not forgetting the siblings of these kids, right? Uh, they, they will be all my, uh, I suppose, uh, beneficiaries uh, that I will need to look after. So I have often gone to schools to meet classes uh, to kind of explain to them why somebody's not coming back to school anymore or why somebody's coming back but he's attending probably like a fraction of the classes because he really wants to feel like he's back in school again despite the advanced illness and how perhaps uh, one day they might be attending his funeral. Yeah, things like that. So it's, it's all in a day's work, uh, really challenging, but uh, so rewarding, as I've said, uh, teaching me all about uh, life and living. Okay. Thanks, Dr. Chong, for sharing, and thanks, Tiaing, for sharing. Is there any like, wish that you want to say, how do we improve on palliative care in Singapore? Uh, I think we go to Tiaing first. Okay, I think I'll start in maybe... To, to make it a very important point. I would like to second uh, Dr. Chong's suggestion of caregivers' leave, in a sense, yeah, for end-of-life patients and, and their family members. Because I think, I mean, caregivers' stress is really not something to joke about. And the capacity that is needed for caregiving is really usually a lot of times uh, underestimated. And it would really be very nice. I really think it would be a very good idea to have uh, this caregiving leave uh, that is offered to family members to take care of other family members. Yeah. So I'll just end with that so that it can become a very punctuated point. <laughs> <laughs> so it's not all just whimsical, right? So thank you for, uh, you know, seconding that. Yeah. Uh, for me, I, I, I suppose uh, uh, I am... Uh, probably going to contribute at most 10 more years in my professional life, uh, you know, to this course. Uh, this is my second career, uh, having worked as a family physician in the first half of my professional life. And then I joined this charity and have done this work for more than uh, two decades. So um, what I'm hoping to see in the next 10 years is uh, the minister's vision come true. Uh, although it's a lot of work, uh, but we will chip at it. Uh, and uh, more importantly, uh, as we've discussed a lot on this program, it's about, uh, you know, everybody being very honest with themselves, you know, to have those conversations that are so important, to confront some of the realities in life, um, and to then make some of those decisions that they need to make, uh, whether it's in regards to how they spend their life now, what are some of the priorities? What are some of the relationships that are important to them? Treasure them, nurture or develop them if uh, they haven't been. And at uh, the right time, uh, you know, when it does happen, to just take that step and cross over without too much, uh, you know, tension, anxiety or stress, because this is just the way nature, you know, or life flows. Um, I think if everybody can get that equanimity, 
uh, there will be lots of peace, dignity and uh, happiness um, when life closes. Thank you. Thanks, thanks. Once again, I'd like to thank my guests, Dr. Chong and Jiaying, for your time today. Thank you all for listening in. See you on the next episode on On Diversity. On Diversity is a podcast inspired by the Institute of Policy Studies Managing Diversity's Research Programme. We are available on Omni.fm, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts and Spotify. Please follow or subscribe to get notified when we have a new episode. You can visit our website, ipscommons.sg, for more info.